ETF Prime is hosted by investment advisors of the ETF store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF.com or any of its affiliates. ETF.com's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF.com of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show this week. Joining me will be Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, who, of course, is a top three ETF issuer. And we're going to cover an area that hasn't really been discussed much on this podcast, which is traditional sector investing. Uh, State Street does offer the most popular sector ETF lineup, the Select Sector Spiders. I feel like these are always used as a, a proxy anytime the financial media references a sector. But what I find interesting here is clearly everyone is watching the economy right now. Vaccinations continue to increase. Masks are becoming optional. And so more people are starting to get back out. Businesses are opening back up. People are booking vacations. And so from an investment standpoint, the big focus is what happens next with the economy? Will things really start cooking? And if so, what does that mean for inflation and interest rates and everything else? And if you look at the performance and flows of the sector ETFs, they're absolutely painting a picture right now. And quite frankly, I can't think of a better person to discuss what's going on here than Matt. He, he just has an uncanny ability to tell a story through the lens of ETFs. And so we're going to do that with the select sector spiders. Also joining me this week will be Jason Sue, founder and C, uh, CIO of Radiant Global Advisors, who back in December, they launched their first ETF. This also happens to be the world's first actively managed China ETF. It's called the Radiant Quantumental China Equity ETF. And I, I love the use of the uh, term quantum mental in the name here, by the way. But Jason will spotlight that ETF, and we'll talk about the overall investment case for China. Uh, this ETF focuses on China A shares. Now, to start this week, I have the one and only Drew Boros on the line with me from California. Drew is editor-in-chief of ETF.com, and we had so much fun going rapid fire through a bunch of ETF topics a few weeks ago. We're going to do that again right now. Time now for our weekly chat with the experts at ETF.com, the world's leading independent authority on ETFs. I think we're seeing a different way of ETFs being launched. The real kicker was governance, selling a private data. They really let down their customers repeatedly. Drew, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Nate. Always a pleasure. All right. So summer officially kicks off this weekend with Memorial Day. And you and I were batting around some topics offline. We just thought it'd be fun to take a little uh, breather and discuss which of the more prominent ETF stories this year will uh, stay in the limelight and which ones will sort of fizzle away over the summer. And, you know, I thought as a backdrop to that, we should probably start by discussing the current market environment overall, right? Because if you look at how the year began, I mean, ARK ETFs, SPAC ETFs, blockchain, marijuana, all of these areas came screaming out of the gate. We, we basically picked up right where we left off in the back half of 2020. But since about mid-February, everything has turned. Uh, so, so to begin, I mean, any quick thoughts on what we have seen from the markets over the past few months or even the, the recent crypto crash But before we get into specific ETFs? Well, I think some of it has to do with just um, market getting way ahead of itself, way ahead of everything. Uh, I think a lot of what we saw earlier in the year was a new administration coming in, the idea there's a lot of new things going to happen. Uh, you mentioned marijuana, the idea that marijuana was going to be legal suddenly. Um, 
you know, caught on and we saw marijuana ETFs uh, blow up. But since then, we've seen cooler heads prevail. Uh, we've seen a pullback in the decriminalization legislation going through Congress. Uh, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, and therefore, we've seen a pullback. And all these super high-flying stocks we saw earlier in the year, we got to remember these things were, had doubled in the 12 months. Uh, and I think anybody who's watched markets long enough uh, to know that when something doubles, there's going to be a payback time. And we're slowly starting to see that. Um, but I do think that the, the economy is just primed to grow. Uh, how many people do we know never took a vacation in the last year? Uh, and how many people are all taking vacations this year? Uh, that alone is a big piece of the economy that was missing. Uh, hospitality, etc. Everyone's going out to eat now. There just seems to be the right conditions you know, for a good economy. I'm not going to say it's going to go hyper, uh, but it just seems that the, the, the pieces are in line in America, and that's the caveat. There's still a huge problem internationally with COVID. Uh, there's still going to be international travel issues. Uh, so we may be a little bit of an isolated oasis in terms of a, a, the economy. Uh, so that's going to be a factor and maybe something that people aren't really recognizing, that what's happening in the U.S. is not what's really happening around the world. Yeah, and I think from an investor standpoint, the challenge right now is is reconciling that, the fact that the economy is reopening, and we'll just stay here U.S.-centric. Things look pretty good on that front. However, you have these pockets of froth in the market, and, and some of that froth has obviously come out here recently. But as an investor, I think it can be a little bit difficult when you see uh, SPACs and, and, and crypto and some of these other areas you want to effectively project those onto the broader market and and try to draw some conclusions. I'm not so sure that you can do that in this current environment. I I, I would say in some ways, but I I just feel more and more crypto is playing a bigger role in in just the the psychology of the market. Um, And and I think that's something that we didn't have two, three years ago. Crypto was sort of this, wow, as you see, it went up $10,000 over the last two months. Um, but now I think it's something that's in in the narrative of the day, uh, for better and for worse. Frankly, I, I think um, the interesting think that, no. Well, I was going to say I think the interesting angle here is what if crypto didn't exist? Uh, I, I've sort of hypothesized is it has it been a release valve for the market? So in other words, if crypto wasn't here, would there be more speculation in stocks? I, I think that's an interesting avenue to explore. Sure. Or or you know, would we be talking more about gold? Or, or would we be talking about, you know, not having SPACs, but having, you know, something else? So, yeah, I mean, what, what's here and what's now? But I, I, I do think that we're in a different setting. Um, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, crypto plays on the narratives. Uh, and right now, I think that the market is just, you know, right probably where it should be. I mean, I think the last three months has been a little bit of a, um, a cleansing, if you will. Um, and now we're, we're set to roll. And I, I was just mentioning on TDA Network on Friday, we saw on May 13th a real bounce uh, on a lot of these um, growth stocks, the ARC funds, you know, the, the TANs, the IPO ETFs. Uh, they're they're coming back, and it's not been a snapback. It's been a slow, steady climb, and I think that's what's encouraging. We're seeing it again today. You know, markets are are you know those growth stocks are rebounding, but they're not rebounding quickly. They're slowly grinding up, and it tells me that people are buying dips. People are feeling better about getting in the market, um, and I think that going forward, um, I, I think things are going to be pretty good. Well, this, that's a good segue. Let's go rapid fire through a few of these ETF topics. And I, I guess since we were talking crypto, let's just start there. Uh, blockchain ETFs. So you look at the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF, ticker BLOK. That's still up about 25% on the year, but it's down nearly 30% from its February high. Uh, the Bitwise Crypto Industry Innovators ETF, ticker BITQ, that launched on May 11th, probably not the greatest timing with the market. You, you know, it's already down 10%. But right now, there are six blockchain ETFs altogether. And obviously, these funds are correlated to Bitcoin and and crypto prices to varying degrees. So not a huge surprise here in terms of the recent performance. But any quick thoughts on on this segment? Yeah, I think one thing people forgot about with BLOK was back uh, in February and January, we had the launch of uh, NBA Top Shot, which doesn't seem like a lot. But it was the first real application of blockchain in a way that touched mainstream Um, and, you know, you heard a lot about NBA Top Shot, and this is a new way of collecting, but the backbone was blockchain, and this is a very effective business. It's taking in 
fifty hundred million dollars a month uh, on blockchain and you know moving its product through blockchain. So that was a real application that people saw. How that plant pans out and is you know what actually is the backbone to the most successful e-commerce going forward, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. But I, I I think we're in the early stages, of course, and you know blockchain is just going to be. Uh, a part of the market that people are going to either believe in or not. And I, I don't think these are going to go away. And I don't think launching right now matters. That's not the way people launch ETFs. It doesn't really, unless there's a complete meltdown like we saw a year ago in April or March, there's really little reason for issuers to pull back uh, on market conditions matched on their theses that they're launching. One of the reasons the blockchain ETFs exist is because the SEC has been reluctant to approve a Bitcoin ETF. Do you think the recent volatility in Bitcoin, I mean, we saw a, a what, 50% drop here recently. It's bouncing around all over the place. Do you think that will impact the SEC's decision-making at all on a Bitcoin ETF? No, I don't think the volatility surprised anybody. I think the, the consistent non-stability or non-volatility would surprise people. Uh, this is a volatile product. Everybody realizes it. And as soon as you think it's not, it hits you in the face. What I think is going to happen is that this just is going to bring more light to probably the, the other crypto coins uh, that seem to be more uh, prone to fraud, more prone to manipulation. Uh, obviously, Dogecoin, we're seeing Elon Musk manipulate by the word. doesn't seem like a very very decentralized kind of thing of one person can move the market. Um, but I think the, the, the ship sails on, and I think those who want uh, to have a Bitcoin will get their day at some point. Just a matter of time. People are very impatient. And I think when it comes to regulatory issues, a new administration, you know, it's going to be later and sooner, unfortunately. All right. We mentioned the ARK ETFs earlier, and ARK was obviously the media darling last year, right? The, the darling of investors as well. But they now have several ETFs in the midst of 30, 35 percent drawdowns from their highs. To, to me, the big question here is, will ARK investors stay loyal? Like, like are they going to stick with Kathy Wood no matter what? Uh, or are they going to bail? Now, now, so far, for the most part, they have stayed with the funds. But I, I'm curious, as we head towards the back half of the year, what do you think happens here? Uh, you know, I think it's way too early. I mean, we saw these funds, again, they doubled over a year. Did we really think they were going to double again this year and double next year and double next year? It's not that easy. Um, so I also think it's a different type of investor. I think it's an investor that understands what they're getting into, and they understand that these kind of stocks can be, I wouldn't say volatile, but they can be unpredictable. Uh, and I think unpredictable on the upside as much as the downside. Uh, so I think we're just seeing, you know, just the machinations of the market play out. Things go up, you know, 100 percent. They're going to come down 50 percent. It's just the revision of the mean playing out. And I think people believe in Kathy. And I think probably the only instance out there in the ETF world where uh, an active manager is really representing not just a product, but the entire company. Uh, and this kind of, you know, goes back to the old days of Peter Lynch and Bill Gross. Um, so maybe we're seeing that come back. And I think a personality in the ETF uh, that stands behind her products is transparent. Boy, that's a, well, some fresh air. And what's amazing here is, and I, I know a lot of this was back in January and February, but you look at the eight ARC ETFs, they've taken in something like $15, $16 billion this year. Uh, you know, that despite several ETFs, as I mentioned, dropping 30 to 35%. I mean, that to me... Yeah, but people Go ahead. People aren't looking at the – I mean, I, I, it kind of frustrates you. We, you know, we can look at the accordion time slice any way we want and make it sound good, bad, or whatever. And I think people with long-time horizons aren't looking at what just happened in three months. Or uh, Certainly, there are plenty that are doing that. But I, I think the, the real hardcore investor in these ARC funds are, you know, are true believers. And will they stay with her forever? Of course not. If things continue to go south, people will eventually leave. Uh, but I think – a story going through the next three, four, or five months really will be watching just the whole growth area uh, of these uh, ETFs and you know stocks, obviously that have been driving the bull market. Uh, and I think I think it was Kathy Wood said today, you know, that this um, transition from growth to value is actually helping the bull market. It's going to provide the next leg because the growth is going to come back, and that's where she's seeing it. Uh, so it's going to, like I said, the next three, four months will be fun to watch what's going on in the overall market, how it affects ARC, and whether or not investors stick with that. All right, a few minutes left here. Continuing with our, uh, our rapid fire, let's get to a, a couple more areas. Uh, SPAC ETFs. So if I look at the SPAC and new issue ETF, ticker SPCX, 
This thing is up nearly 10% for the year, but again, like some of the other categories we're talking about, down 12, 13% from its high. The Defiance Next Gen SPAC derived ETF, ticker SPAK, that's down over 30% from its high, down about 15% for the year. And I, I think right now there are what, four long only SPAC related ETFs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, do, do you think these ETFs will have staying power, or do you think the SPAC boom no, is over? I don't. You don't. I, I think I don't think they will. I, these are, you know, sort of a an IPO that nobody understands. Uh, and I think it was one of the things that came out quickly. There was, you know, what was it DraftKings and a, a couple big names <clears throat> went public through the SPAC structure. And frankly, I think it was sort of a one-hit wonder. And you know, the the idea that SPAC is going to be this new thing that everybody gravitates toward. I. I don't think so. Um, I, I think it's going to be there. I think it's a nice option for companies to go public. Um, but I don't think as an investor, much less, it doesn't have any mass appeal. Um, but who knows? I could be wrong. By the way, I'm not sure if you saw this, but uh, Tuttle Capital, they actually launched a short DSPAC ETF last week, ticker mm -hmm. SOGU. So obviously that will do well if post-merger SPACs continue uh, to, to fall. They also launched a long version as well. Well, that's the beauty of the market. You know, and I always said, why is not, why hasn't there been a, sh you know, a short Bitcoin ETF using futures? You can, you can short Bitcoin all day long if you want. Nobody ever talks about that. So again, you know, if you don't believe something's going to happen, we'll short it. Well, here comes a fund that does it. And again, the beauty of the ETF toolkit, <clears throat> something comes along to help you do what you want. All right. One other area I want to quickly touch on, and you alluded to this earlier, cannabis ETFs. And uh, again, if I look at something like the ETFMG Alternative Harvest ETF, ticker MJ, largest pot ETF, that was up over 200% from November 1st into uh, mid-February. But since that time, that ETF is down 40%. And I, I know you spent a lot of time covering cannabis and in, in the pot ETF space. I mean, any thoughts on what's going on here? Is this what you were speaking to earlier, just in terms of the political landscape, things not moving as quickly? Yeah, I think it's a classic uh, story of uh, buy the rumor, sell the news. Um, you know, all through the fall and up until the administration, the idea was like as soon as you know the Biden administration gets in, one of the first things they're going to do is decriminalize marijuana. It's going to open up capital markets to cannabis companies, and it's going to allow retail to flourish. Uh, pardon the pun, but um, that didn't happen, and it's not going to happen quickly. And there's also a little bit different air in the political. Um, spectrum here is that you know they don't get decriminalization through in the next 18 months perhaps or we're going to be looking at the midterm elections and not to get all politically here uh but you know there is a very thin margin uh, on the house i think it's uh, less than 10 seats so if we have a switch in midterms to where the house goes republican uh, obviously that's going to be doa and we're going to see these pot etfs tumble um, so there is going to be kind of an interesting 18 months with marijuana ETFs in terms of, you know, is this de decriminalization actually going to happen? Um, Schumer has pushed it, but has also pulled back on it. It's not on a docket anywhere to be discussed in Congress. Uh, and we're in the summer. We're about to go to recess. Next thing you know, we're going to be in 2022. Well, and I think an interesting ETF angle here, and we've talked about this in the past, there is a lot of ETF competition in this space. And while mm -hmm. just about all of those ETFs have de decent assets, they've been healthy, if you do get some sort of shakeout in the market here, I just wonder how many of those survive longer term. Because, again, just a lot of competition. It's a novelty thing, too. I mean, the, the idea of legal marijuana in 2017 was this, you know, perhaps this brand new business field for everybody in the world. Uh, but I think that the idea of, uh, you know, legal marijuana, that novelty has faded going to be along the lines of tobacco and alcohol. Um, so I think there, there's, again, the time is of the essence, I, I think, for pot ETFs. And, you know, to be long and forget about uh, pot ETFs is to your peril in the next two years, in my opinion. All right, Drew, before I let you go, if you had to pick an ETF story or two that you think might get a bunch of headlines in the second half of the year, any good candidates for a, a new shiny object? Or are you going to go with one of the areas we just talked about? Not, neither, really. I mean, I'm not a, I, I really don't know what, I mean, I could pretend like I want to know what kind of product should come out there, but I really don't know. It's a business. It's not a fantasy. Um, one thing I think <clears throat> I, I'm kind of surprised and hasn't happened, I think maybe the pandemic had something to do with it, is uh, further consolidation with when it comes to ETF issuers. Um, Invesco has just wrapped up its multi-year um, acquisitions of Guggenheim and Oppenheimer. 
um, and it's sitting pretty nicely. Um, that it, that that merger has gone well. They've had to call the herd of some of the ETFs, uh, but now you know they're in a very strong position as the fourth largest ETF issuer, I believe, in the world. Um, so, you know, that's sort of a model that's out there. I, I think Schwab is growing radically quickly um, in ways that nobody's paying attention to. I think they could be uh, out there looking for smaller issuers. And, and that's when I mean consolidation. There's so many mid-tiers. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, you're talking about the Block ETF. and You're talking about some of these marijuana ETFs. There's a Jets ETF. There's a lot of – somebody could go shopping and, and pick up some pretty hot and, and you know, money-making ETFs singularly rather than just buying companies. Uh, and that's typically what they do in Silicon Valley. Google's buying up every AI company that, that touches ground there, it seems. Uh, so I, I wonder if that's going to happen. And then, of course, I always look at BlackRock and think, what what, what are they thinking is going to happen in five years? Um, so I would keep an eye on BlackRock, just whatever they're thinking of. They're the market leader in so many ways. And the idea that I think um, some of these mid-tier ETFs are healthy enough, have enough AUM, uh, that some of the, I think, the larger ETF issuers, at some point, it's easier to buy it than build it. Uh, and scaling is what this industry is all about. And it seems like we need to, another scale up as fees go down. Well, Drew, great stuff this week. Always appreciate the time. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Nate. It's always been a pleasure being on. That was ETF.com's Drew Voros. My next guest is Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, who currently offers 140 ETFs, over $950 billion invested. That includes the select sector spiders, which are 11 ETFs comprising the major sectors of the S&P 500. And these alone currently have about $225 billion invested, and they will be the focus of our conversation this week. Uh, Matt is on the line with me from Boston. Matt, always great having you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, Nate, thanks for having me. Glad to be back. All right, so we are going to focus on sector investing, which I'm really excited about. We actually haven't covered this much on the podcast, and I, I do think there are some interesting stories sort of embedded here. However, before we do that, you track ETF flows as closely as anyone. So I wanted to start there because, you, you know, I look, we're nearly at the end of May, I show $375 billion has come into ETFs in 2021. We're on pace for, what, $900 billion or so annually. I'm just curious, what's been your impression of ETF flows this year? And has anything in particular stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, they've been really strong, as you pointed out. Um, over the past you know, 12 months, it's $752 billion. We are, you know, May right now, I see about $50.6 billion of inflows in the month of May. So, you know, barring some outflows in the last few days, we're likely to clip that $50 billion mark again, which would be the eighth consecutive month in a row, which is a record stretch. Um, but I think what is also interesting is that, you know, while we have record streaks and we have record flows, there's a lot of depth to these flows. So we looked at this earlier in the month. Basically, 66% of all ETFs are in net inflows. Um, this is the highest rate through the middle of a May since 2014, when a much smaller industry saw 67% of funds post inflows. And if we take a full year's worth of results, look at it, the 66% is the highest since 2017, when 69% of the funds ended the year in net inflows for the full year. Now, I think what's even more interesting is that last year we had record flow totals uh, for the industry, but only 65% of the funds had net inflows in all of 2020. And I think, to me, that illustrates how capital is being put to work in 2021 with a significant amount of depth to it. It's not just one or two big funds. There's a lot of assets going into a multitude of other funds. And then it speaks to sort of the abundance of choice ETF investors have, but also how investors have been trying to gravitate towards specific areas of the marketplace based upon their viewpoint of what's driving returns and how those portfolios might be constructed, whether they're equal weight or, or market cap weight. And the main beneficiary of these flows overwhelmingly has been equity funds. So equity funds have more flows in 2021 already than they did in all of 2020. So 
taking a step back and saying, okay, strong price of flows, a lot of depth, what does this all mean? And it just indicates that capital is being deployed at a frenetic pace as investors seek to participate in this recovery reflationary rally. If we continue drilling down even a bit further, and, th- and this will be a good segue to talking sector ETFs, certainly the market overall has been a tailwind for ETF flows, right? I I feel like most investors know the S&P 500 is near all-time highs. For the most part, there's been really positive market sentiment, and and that's helped drive money into ETFs. But if you look under the surface, there's been some real divergence among where that money has gone. So I think growth versus value is certainly an area we can talk about. And then, of course, sector ETFs. So continuing with the flow theme. I mean, can you talk more about what's been going on beneath these headline flow numbers, especially from a sector perspective? Yeah, so sector funds, they have about $6 billion of inflows this month. That would be their eighth in a row uh, of positive inflows and evidence of investors, in my view, trying to seek out more than just plain beta to participate in this rally, because there has been breakaway winners and laggards. Uh, one thing we like to look at is, you know, rolling six-month dispersion between the best and worst performing sector. And right now, that's sitting in the 99th percentile historically going back 25 years. So it's a very dispersed return environment that benefits overweighting, you know, leaders and underweighting the laggards. And that obviously speaks to the sectors, which is, a, you know, that high amount of dispersion across a low number of securities is beneficial for rotational um, strategies. But overall, sector funds this year, they've taken in $50 billion. That's mo- wow. the most amount of flows for any calendar year ever. And it has been driven by cyclical sector exposures. So we can break out sectors by cyclical versus defensive. Cyclical sectors are areas like materials, industrials, energy, financials, real estate. They've taken in $4 billion this month. That would be, the, again, their eighth month in a row with more inflows. Uh, they had defensives because defensives are only taking in about $1.5 billion this year. Uh, and year to date, if we expand it a little bit more, cyclicals are outpacing defensives by $54 billion. And that's led by a $20 billion inflow in 2021 into financials, as well as $11 billion into energy funds. And I think that sort of speaks to the type of inflationary environment, higher interest rate um, environment we're, we're seeing. Now, those are also some more of the more value-orientated um, sector exposures. You see financials and energy sectors uh, make up a lot of your traditional value exposures. So style flows actually support this cyclical view as well, because value funds, they have about $9 billion of inflows this month already versus $3 billion for growth. And what I think is interesting, on a year-to-date basis, value is crushing growth. $41 billion has gone into value strategies. Only $400 million has gone into growth. So you can kind of see a similar pattern when you both look at it from a cyclical sector perspective, but also a cyclical factor perspective as well. The 11 sector spiders, um, and actually, let me go through these real quick. So there's the communication services select sector spider, uh, ticker XLC, consumer discretionary, XLY, consumer staples, XLP, energy, XLE, financials, XLF, healthcare, XLV, industrials, XLI, materials, XLB, real estate, XLRE, technology, XLK, and then utilities, XLU. And you were mentioning the flows into Uh, cyclicals. And I I would say, obviously, that's not overly surprising, given the optimism over the economy firing back up. And if you look at performance, XLE tops the list of sector spiders up nearly 40% year to date. Financials are up nearly 30%, materials up over 20%, real estate up nearly 20%. You, You were heading down this path, but can you talk more about these cyclical sectors in terms of why these do tend to perform better in in the phase of the economy we're currently in? So you know, we've been in a recovery, and in a recovery, we're starting to see a pickup in inflation dynamics as you know, consumers start to spend more. And, and obviously, this recovery is supremely different than any other recovery we've had, given the type of recession that we had, right, in the drawdown. Um, we've seen demand for commodities increase as economic activity has increased, particularly if you look at Brent crude. Crude's up 32% year-to-date. Energy firms have a high beta sensitivity to the spot price of crude. And as that has increased, you started to see the stock price of energy firms increase alongside their you know, earnings expectations. They've had some of the strongest earnings revisions because partly off a very, very low base, but also that increasing spot price of oil is going to be net positive potentially from a cash flow perspective. Similarly, interest rates have gone up and you know, banks, you know, they 
are you know, happy to see interest rates move higher in terms of their net margin and revenue generation um, overall. Right. So in, in banks and financial firms, they have a high beta sensitivity to rates, but also inflation as well. Right. And inflationary dynamics can support um, higher interest rates uh, and, and more sort of consumer spending and loan generation, et cetera, et cetera, from that perspective. So, you know, in a higher growth, higher inflationary environment, you know, energy, materials um, and financials, those tend to have some of the stronger performance because of their relationship to those macro factors. Um, now, I think it's interesting is around business cycle investing, you know, not all business cycles are the same. And we actually did this study, it came up probably about a year ago, it's still on our website, where we decomposed the business cycle going back to 1960, um, which is before the GICs were created. So we actually had to create our own sector classifications using Fama French data. Um, so we actually had a, a pretty significant amount of, of cycles to analyze. We found that, you know, in a recovery type um, uh, business cycle, you know, materials firms on average did well, right? Because that sort of increase in economic growth, increase in inflationary dynamics. Um, we also saw, um, you know, uh, was it, you know, financials start to do well in an expansion. Consumer discretionary also did well in a recovery, but I think we haven't seen that take place now um, in our current sort of navigating baton passing of recovery to expansion largely around headwinds from high growth stocks like Amazon that have weighed on you know, the overall consumer discretionary sector's performance. But when you actually look beneath the surface uh, at a sub-industry perspective, you know, you see really, really strong performance in home furnishing, you know, up 38%, houseware specialties up 34%, uh, household appliances up 31%, home building up another 28%. And so when we think about, you know, how you maybe can get a little bit more specific in your sort of recovery play in a consumer-oriented segment of the marketplace, you know, owning something like home builders, which has done famously well so far since the bottom of the, of the market, but also into this recovery, can support that thesis. So getting a little bit more specific can be, you know, advantageous if you are taking sort of a business cycle approach to it. Um, but again, that sort of speaks to the dispersed return environment, even at the interest sector level, where you can have, you know, something like in apparel retail, you know, only up 23 basis points this year, but then you have home building or household appliances up in 30%. It just shows where consumers are sort of spending those dollars that have been pent up on the sidelines. Yeah, so you mentioned consumer discretionary maybe not performing quite as well as expected at this phase of the uh, re recovery. I I'm curious about the technology sector because I, I feel like it's a sort of a similar story. You look at the performance, that's it's towards the bottom, uh, up 6 7% in terms of all the sectors. But historically, this sector has done pretty well in at least an expansionary environment. Uh, is this simply a case of it running too hard last year with all of the dynamics around the pandemic, right? Work from home, leisure from home. I, th I think everyone knows tech had a monster run last year. So is tech reacting a bit differently now because of that? So I think also just framing this idea of an expansion probably helpful. So I had written a blog post that's out on our website now that tries to you know, answer the question of where we are in the cycle. And we utilized the same process that we did in that paper on business cycle investing. We used the year-over-year -year change in the U.S. Conference Board's leading economic indicators. And that year-over-year -year change was actually one of the highest we've ever seen just because of the low base effects of where we were in you know, this time period in 2020. Um, based on that change, it actually w would indicate that we are in an expansionary phase. However, we just entered it, right? So trying to understand maybe how tech is performing, and, it, and it, you're right, it has done well on average um, in an expansionary time period because, you know, you start to have more capital expenditures and more investment dollars, and that leads to more technology spending and infrastructure spending in terms of your tech stack. And we've seen that historically. But we just entered that expansion. We've actually, are, you know, we probably still need a couple more data points to really make a hard confirmation of, okay, yeah, this is an expansion because it was just one data point so far. You know, obviously it uses 10 underlying indicators, but we've only seen that change. So we want to see a little bit more. So you've still been in this recovery phase. So I wouldn't sort of tie tech's performance to any sort of business cycle. I actually think it's more similar to the comment I made earlier about Amazon where, you know, tech is you know, come under pressure in this near term because of that shift of growth, high growth stocks to value stocks, because tech stocks, growth stocks, they tend to be longer duration. You know, those earnings are further out in the future. That sort of quote unquote cash payment, therefore, has a longer maturity. And with interest rates rising, you know, longer duration stocks have been, you know, have re-rated and sold off because, you know, that discount rate is now higher for those. 
Um, so I think tech has sort of been a casualty, much like a lot of the thematic ETFs out in the space that are more growth oriented. They've been sort of this casualty of the growth to value trade and that sort of near term shift. And I wouldn't really necessarily tie it to the business cycle. However, going forward, if we do see more capital expenditures, and I think there will be just given what we've seen already from the economic perspective, I think somewhere like software services would probably do well within the broader tech sector, just given how it, we're going to more digitally connected community and software is going to be the catalyst or backbone to that. I would see some capital expenditure dollars filter into the software space. And we already see that. Gartner expect uh, the, uh, software services to have the highest amount of, um, of spending relative to all other broad IT categories. Uh, sort of rounding out our conversation here on the performance of sectors, in addition to tech, if I look at some sectors that are uh, lagging performance-wise, I see utilities, uh, consumer staples, I, I guess healthcare to a lesser degree. I, any color you would offer on these? I mean, to me, really no big surprises given where we're at. W- would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, they're more defensive in nature. Right. Uh, and, you know, we have not seen a defensive uh, rally, right? We've seen a more cyclical risk-on rally. Uh, you know, consumer staples are those more packaged goods that you would buy in a significant drawdown. That's, that's why, you know, consumer staples did well back in March and April and May of, of 2020. Healthcare is a bit interesting because, you know, they're sort of caught up in this defensive rotation. You know, their earnings growth and earnings sentiment still remain okay. Um, from a price momentum perspective, they have lag, but valuations are constructive. And I think healthcare, everyone could agree that's a persistent need. We still have demographic uh, issues as well as, you know, again, a significant focus on uh, healthcare innovation, particularly as it relates to biotechnology. So again, here, I would actually dive a little bit deeper if you're looking for an opportunity in the healthcare space to go into biotech, just given what we're seeing in terms of M&A, but also the need for advanced medicines. Matt, zooming out here, can you talk more about using sector ETFs in a portfolio? Because I feel like with the overall trend towards just buying broad market ETFs or, or even thematic ETFs, we can talk about those in a minute, but sector ETFs, at least from my perspective, haven't gotten nearly as much run. I, I, I could be wrong, but how do you see these used in a portfolio? I mean, is this as simple as investors overweighting or underweighting certain sectors? Uh, or what else do you see in terms of portfolio application here? Yeah, I mean... In the last 18 months, we've seen more flows of the sector ETFs than we've ever seen before. And I think it is this sort of awakening from investors uh, from the ability to use these tools for action based on their, their investment thesis. You know, we, we sort of view it around four different ways. And there's so many different personas within here, too, in terms of, you know, asset allocators and, and ETF strategists to you know, more retail-oriented, trying to play, you know, a specific theme. In terms of use cases or how you might incorporate it, it sort of centers on four things. One is pursue alpha, you know, capitalize on that wide dispersion of returns by overweighting winners and underweighting losers. Obviously, you have to get that part correct to harness the dispersion. Um, but again, it's only spread over 11, you know, 11 securities or 11 market segments. So the ability to sort of overweight and underweight is, is I would say, um, easier than to say doing it among single stocks where dispersion is higher. But sector dispersion is actually still quite high relative to single stocks. And it's actually even way higher than styles. You know, I think we typically see a lot of sort of style rotation and be like, oh, I'm going to go to value or growth. And we actually see sectors having a significant amount of dispersion relative to uh, styles, basically twice as much on average over the last you know, two decades. So I think pursuing alpha is one. Positioning for business cycles, you know, aligning your portfolio and shifts in business cycles by increasing or reducing allocations based on the current economic phase, that historically has worked on average, but there can be sort of idiosyncratic moves in the marketplace to disrupt that business cycle. I always go back to healthcare in 2018. We were in a slowdown. Healthcare tends to work well historically in a slowdown environment. However, fears of price gouging in terms of medicines and prescriptions distorted the sector and you saw a negative sentiment. So again, you can position for certain business cycles or even just you know what's going on in the marketplace um, overall by using sectors because those firms are tied to specific economic variables. Now, the, the last one actually speaks very, very finely to that, or I say the third one, is sort of capturing these secular or cyclical industry trends because those sectors are so closely aligned with specific economic variables like oil, inflation, rate, the dollar. It can help investors sort of capture industry trends. You know, if your view is that interest rates are going to go up, and on your bond side of your portfolio, you're trimming duration. Well, why wouldn't you think about that on your equity side, right? Think about what is actually has positive sensitivity to interest rates. You know, 
start overweight in areas like banks, materials firms, metals and mining, and start to sort of capture some of those trends on both sides of the portfolio. And then lastly, this really more speaks towards, you know, some of the more retail-oriented um, investors out in the marketplace, but obviously it's applicable to everybody, sort of harnessing diversification benefits. So seeking targeted exposure to a theme or a trend without taking on severe stock-specific risk. Because stock picking is not an easy job, and investors might get that sector call right, but the stock call wrong. And this is the stat we always like to, to throw out there, and, and I don't know if it would translate over, over a podcast, because there's a lot of numbers to it, but I'll, I'll make my best attempt. So historically, over the past 15 years, more stocks have underperformed their respective sector averages by more than 10% than have outperformed hmm. by more than 10%. So there's asymmetry to this. You're, you're more likely to pick the wrong stock that's going to hit it out of the park uh, and be down 10% on the right stock that's going to hit it out of the park. And that's why you can sort of pick, play that trend with sectors. Let's go back to my software services example. You know, not all firms are going to innovate or benefit the same pace, but you could you can make the argument that the industry overall could benefit from an uptick in the need for software in a more digitally connected you know society. Matt, just a few minutes left here, but to your last point on attempting to take advantage of a, a theme or trend, as it pertains to traditional sector investing, one thing you'll hear in uh, marketing pitches for thematic ETFs is that old sector investing is dead, right? That that it's outdated and Thematic ETFs are better because they cut across traditional sectors. They're, they're more forward-thinking. Do, do you have any thoughts on that line of thinking? Yeah, I mean, we have thematic ETF exposures in our lineup. You know, we don't use that that framing. You know, it's all it's all positioning. I mean, look, we we as a firm have 260 billion in sector and industry assets. So if you're a firm that only focuses on thematics, of course you're going to try and take some of those assets away from us and use some form of positioning or marketing angle. In the end, like all ETFs, these are market exposures, and your use case depends on your investment thesis with sectors to industries to thematics getting a bit more targeted but also concentrated. And I'll, I'll sort of make a very quick golf analogy. You know, on a, on a par five, I'm going to take out my driver and let the big dog eat because that's what I would want to do. On a par four that's a dog leg left because I slice, I'm probably going to use my three wood. And on a par three, I'm going to grip and rip my seven iron. Right? I have different clubs. I have different use cases for all of these because – they require those. And if you have, like, again, I'll go back to this example. Like, if you have a view that in a connected society that um, we're going to need more technology, well, you could go out and buy something like XLK. It gives you broad-based technology. But if you really feel and you have a higher conviction that, again, going back to the same thing I've talked about a lot, software firms. It's going to be software firms. I don't want hardware, um, you know. You can do that, right? You can go out there and be more specific and focus in on just software services firms. But, again, you know, maybe this is a seven iron, right? You go out, you want to be more specific because your view isn't just software firms. You want firms innovating in, say, connected technology, uh, intelligent infrastructure. You can do that with thematic ETFs. But at each step, you're taking on more active risk versus the market, and that should be appreciated. But again, it comes down to your investment, you know, investment thesis. In the end, these are all tools for action, and it's one of the reasons why in a year with wide dispersion of returns and clear winners emerging amid this reflation rally, Investors have turned to sectors more so than any other time period and favoring those ones with a strong relationship to what is driving the market right now in terms of rates, inflation, and expansionary forces. So I wouldn't view it as, you know, old versus new. I'd say, well, what's your viewpoint? How are you going to implement this? Where's it going in your portfolio? And what type of risks you're willing to take? And then starting from there and having the conversation of saying, okay, well, if you want intelligent infrastructure, you know, you, yeah, that spans many different sectors. So maybe you should find an ETF that does that for you. Um, conversely, if you just want to own tech because then capital expenditures are going to be high in this you know coming period, but you don't want to take on specific active risk, you know because you're going to be owning say more mid and small caps and a software services ETF, you do that too. So it's all about understanding the portfolio construction attributes and the role it's going to play in your portfolio as it aligns to your investment thesis. Extremely well said, and I love how every time you're on this podcast, I can count on you for a sports analogy. I think we've had <laughs> golf, I think we've had baseball, we've had basketball at some point. Maybe even uh, you've snuck in a football one at, at some point. But Matt, yeah, I, we'll, probably we'll, won't be able, I probably won't be able to do hockey. Unfortunately, <laughs> this is not my forte. Um, Matt, I, I always uh, appreciate the time. Uh, thank you for joining me this week. All right, thanks, Nate. That was Matt Bordellini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors.
I'm now joined by Jason Sue, founder and CIO of Radiant Global Advisors, who at the end of last year, they launched their first ETF. And not only that, this is actually the world's first actively managed China ETF. It's called the Radiant Quantumental China Equity ETF, ticker symbol RAYC. And Jason himself was at the forefront of smart beta. So he helped develop the Rafi Fundamental Index approach with Rob Arnott back in 2005. He's also a PhD. He's an adjunct professor in finance at UCLA, and he's now on the line with me from California. Jason, a pleasure having you on the podcast. Hi Nate, glad to be here. Okay, so before we talk about the uh, ETF I would love to hear more about your ETF background because, as I understand it, you helped design China's first smart beta strategy in 2009. You built the investment strategies behind a number of ETFs, including ones listed in Hong Kong and China. I mentioned you worked with Rob Arnott.、Uh, tell us more about your experience in、uh, ETFs and perhaps what brought you to the point of launching the Quantumental China ETF. Got it, Nate. Well, back in 2009,、uh, when I was still a research affiliate building out the Rafi Fundamental Index franchise, the two stock exchanges,、uh, the Shanghai and Shenzhen Stock Exchange、uh, from China, contacted me and asked if they could license the Fundamental Index, and in fact, asked if we could help them create a family of smart beta indices for licensing out to ETF providers in China, and so thus, you know. Began my journey of bringing smart beta ETFs to Asia.、Uh, initially, we launched a number of different ETFs with different、uh, ETF providers in China, with you know Harvest Global Advisors to be to be、uh, specific. Uh, and uh, subsequently, that's grown to to be quite a large business, large enough for research affiliates to actually spin off Radiant Global Advisors,、uh, which previously was its、uh, Asia subsidiary. And we continue to add more ETFs. Okay, so let's talk about the Quantumental China ETF, and I always like to start with、uh, ETF construction and, and, and methodology first, and then we can certainly get into the investment case.、Uh, so, as I mentioned, this is actively managed. Tell us about your investment process and what, what exactly this ETF holds.、Uh, so, when we say Quantumental,、uh, what we mean is it's a combination of the fundamental analysis that all good active managers apply. In their stock picking process, the quant part is to really take data and empirically validate、uh, whether the signal works well or not. In what environments does it work? How long does it work? Does it decay? Is there cyclicality to it? So, combining the the quantumental approach, which is really the tried and true the stock picking sector selection investment methodology, with the quantitative science, making it more scientific. Uh, making you know, the pattern detection、uh, you know, more robust, you really get the best of both worlds. And by bringing that into a active ETF chassis,、uh, moving away from the need of having a index that a manager would have to mechanically、uh, track, this allows for more dynamic rebalancing. You could rebalance on daily frequency、uh, when the situation calls for it. You could rebalance less frequently when the situation calls for it. So really,、uh, not only are we using the ETF chassis, which is superior to mutual funds and that it gives you daily liquidity, we're using a ETF innovation, which does not require a a index、uh, that that manager would have to track exactly, which actually、uh, allows the active methodology to really come to life, especially in a market that's、uh, very dynamic, very fluid, and very inefficient like China. Okay, and so then tell us more about the, the specific stocks that are held within this ETF. Well, within this ETF, we hold about a hundred stocks, so it's a very broadly diversified portfolio, giving you access to all the different sectors. And the reason for that is most of our investors are looking to participate more broadly in China rather than betting on one stock, one sector.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're going to have many of the top banks. So we hold China Merchant Bank as one of our top positions, representing one of the highest quality、uh, and fastest growing financial service providers in China.、Uh, clearly, we're going to hold a lot of the consumers,、uh, be it、uh, Maotai, which is the biggest beverage、uh, manufacturer uh, in in China,、uh, and a lot of the、uh, consumer cyclicals, representing a upgrade in domestic consumption sector.、Uh, so we really have the strongest names in 
each one of the sectors because we know uh, while one sector might do better this year, uh, another will do well next year. And you really don't know when that rotation is going to occur. Uh, it's just a matter of participating and participating in all the sectors with the names that are most likely to deliver long-term success. And in terms of those uh, up to 100 holdings, are those primarily China A shares? They're entirely China A shares. And okay. the reason for that is this is really where the opportunities are. Uh, the offshore shares, uh, those that are listed in Hong Kong, those that are listed in the U.S. as ADRs, uh, they're really not as interesting as what you find onshore as A-shares, uh, because A-shares is mostly retail traded. And as a result, you have a lot of mispricing, a lot of gems that people simply undervalue. And that's really where we find opportunities. In terms of the investment case, I know you believe China is uh, too big for investors to ignore. And I actually pulled a few stats from your website, which I want to read these. I, I thought these were pretty eye-opening. So Chinese firms contribute nearly 30% to global economic growth. China's startup sector is home to 39% of the world's unicorns. So, of course, startup firms with uh, over $1 billion valuations. And then Chinese consumers make up an estimated 36% of global spending on luxury goods. However, you also noted that even given these stats, the typical global equity portfolio only consists of a 0.65% allocation to China A shares, which I just find amazing. Why is there such a big disconnect here? And, and I guess talk about the overall investment case. Absolutely. So there, there are a few things there. Uh, one is most people have this very dated image of China. They see China as you know low-cost manufacturing, uh, low-cost uh, you know, uh, exporting. But that's not all the case today. Uh, today, China has really climbed the value curve. So uh, much of China is now about domestic consumption. As you just mentioned, the domestic consumption is not in sort of low-cost goods anymore. It's in the highest value add, the luxury goods, the brand name goods, uh, whether it's global brand names or the brand names that they're starting to develop uh, domestically. So it's a very different economy uh, in terms of the value add that they create, it's uh, the low-cost manufacturing has all been pushed to, say, Vietnam, Malaysia, Mexico. Uh, domestically, it's really high IP, uh, very high value add manufacturing. Uh, so it's a very different China today. But unfortunately, the world invests in China with really this very dated image. And this is why uh, China Asia is such a tiny fraction, almost negligible, uh, when in fact, if you look at uh, firms that have big allocation in global portfolios, like a uh, Tesla, like a uh, Apple, both of them derive a, a huge part of their revenue from the Chinese market. So there's this really interesting dichotomy, almost inconsistency, that you would have three plus percent in, in Apple and then something comparable in Tesla while having almost no way to China where uh, a huge part of the Apple and Tesla valuation is driven by China. So, I mean, do you think there just needs to be more education around this particular market? I mean, why, why again, do you think there's such a disconnect here? Absolutely. I think it's, it's education. It's uh, really opening up the investor's eyes to what's truly China today. Uh, if you look at the last 15 years, you know, China, the average Chinese company grew their EPS by about 15% per annum. If you look at U.S. over that same time period, U.S. companies, the average U.S. company grew its EPS by about 5% per annum, right? There's a huge differential in growth rate. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. Uh, and in fact, if you compare China versus the rest of the emerging markets, uh, the average company in emerging markets uh, grew at about 2.5% in earnings per shares per year. And that's a tiny, tiny fraction of how fast the Chinese corporations have been growing. Uh, and these, I think, these rapid growth story uh, often just isn't something that, that uh, American investors focus on. Instead, we focus too much on the political risk. We focus too much on, uh, I think, the tension between U.S. and China, which, of course, is natural as China is emerging, really, as the junior partner in that relationship, uh, now wanting to be uh, more of a economic power in its own right. And uh, so I think a lot of this is uh, us not updating our views and our understanding of China and its place in, in the world economy. Okay, so that brings up actually an, an excellent 
area to address, which is what you view as the biggest risks of investing in, in China. And you mentioned, you know, this thought around geopolitical, say maybe China placing constraints on foreign investment or even the U.S. government putting limits on, on U.S. investment in Chinese stocks, which, of course, we saw a little bit of that uh, last year. Um, but what do you view as the biggest risk? I mean, is it that? Is it valuations? Uh, are there some other factors? What, what are the biggest risks right now? Uh, well, let's start with access. Historically, it was hard to access the Chinese onshore market, which is where all the interesting opportunities are. And that was because the Chinese regulators were afraid of international hot money that comes in and out uh, that might harm the quality of the market. Now, over time, access issue is no longer an issue because Chinese regulators realized that there's tremendous benefit to have long-term pension capital from global institutions to come into China and help out with price discovery, to help the Chinese market be more institutionalized. So I think that door is now swung wide open and it's not ever going to close. Uh, really, that's in the self-interest of the, the Chinese um, regulators. Where there's now new issues, it's really, uh, I think, U.S. regulators now slapping on a variety of restrictions when it comes to investing in China. Now, again, not to say that these restrictions are not warranted, but again, they cover a very small fraction uh, of the companies that are listed in China, it, from an optics perspective, is probably more scary and more onerous than in reality. Uh, I think if you if you screen out uh, firms that are on the U.S. executive order, uh, you know you probably would screen out say three percent of the total market cap, and then that's really quite insignificant relative to the universe of opportunities. Now, I think the the more interesting thing to think about is really from a uh, the valuation perspective, the last two years, Chinese stock market has gone about 60%, so about the same rate of return as the U.S. stock market. So it's been raging bull markets for both the U.S. and China. But there's a very big difference in terms of the quality of the run-up in prices. Uh, in the U.S., really, on the backdrop of COVID and really significant consumption decline in the U.S., uh, corporate earnings uh, hasn't really made much progress. So most of what you have was liquidity-driven, basically uh, – valuation running up from 20-ish to now 30-ish, closing up on 40. So U.S. is expensive. By comparison, much of the run-up in China uh, was really based on expansion in fundamental, meaning corporate earnings have actually uh, made uh, significant progress forward. And as a result, uh, valuation gone from 14 times to 17 times. Uh, so most of the, the price increase was driven not by valuation, but really by fundamentals. And so from a valuation perspective, I think this is where China is actually safer than the U.S. Uh, so if you think about risk, really the risk dimension comes from, I would say, the escalation of uh, U.S. Uh, anti-China policy that might give pause to at least the big institutional investors that have more of a political optic risk. Jason, only about a minute left here. In terms of portfolio application with RAYC. Obviously, some investors will own broad emerging market ETFs, which they, they have been adding some China A share uh, exposure over the years, as I know you're aware. How do you see this ETF being used? I mean, is this to take a more targeted approach to China A shares, perhaps overweight here? How, how do you see this ETF used in a portfolio? Yeah, well, what we're seeing a lot of advisors do is that they're selling out of their uh, emerging markets, and rebalancing into China A. Now, part of this is because China A just delivers a lot more growth uh, than the rest of the emerging markets. And the other part is the China inside your emerging markets are mostly the offshore issues, a lot of state-owned enterprises, a lot of names are lower quality and haven't grown as much. So this rebalance both gives you the better China exposure and also solves the issue with uh, emerging markets as a basket haven't really been delivering on the goods because of the lack of growth outside of China. Well, Jason, excellent spotlight this week. Really enjoyed uh, connecting. Certainly wish you all the best with the ETF. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. That was Jason Su, founder and CIO of Raylient Global Advisors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. All right, no podcast next week, but I will be right back here on June 8th with two excellent guests. Really excited about this. I'll be joined by Jake Radin, Director of Product Management and Head of ESG at Open Invest. He's going to explain the potential benefits of direct indexing and an ESG approach. 
And then Liz Simi, co-founder of Honey Tree Investment Management, will also talk ESG, along with taking a look at the Canadian ETF landscape. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>